Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with David. David, for everyone out there listening who might not know who you are, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Ravi. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm David Zeeler. I am the director of the Caltech Heritage Project at the California Institute of Technology, where basically I do all aspects of Caltech history, looking at what happened in the past, connecting it to the present, and connecting that even operationally and strategically into the future. So... One example for connecting something from the past is where I've kind of found a book that you wrote about Agent Orange. And I wanted to talk about, because was that your first endeavor? Was that your first dive into kind of the history and wanting to go down this career path? Or was there something else that triggered that? So even back when I was doing my master's thesis at the University of Montana, there I looked at uh, the Yom Kippur War of 1973 and specifically the American Soviet competition in that proxy war. In 1971 and 1972, this was the high point of detente, a relaxation of tensions between the Americans and the Soviets. The basic idea there was never to have another Cuban Missile Crisis with uh, tensions rising throughout the world, the Vietnam War. American and Soviet leaders came together to figure out how can we put in place a set of diplomatic and security standards so that a local conflict will never blow up into a strategic nuclear war? So they make this agreement in 71 and 72. And then in 1973, you see this massive war that breaks out between the Israelis uh, and the the Arabs. In response to American support for Israel, uh, led by Saudi Arabia, the, the Arab states instituted an oil embargo against the United States. This caused gas lines, this caused stagflation later on in the decade. And even though at that point I was really focused on international affairs and national security and things like that, I got to thinking about oil and resources and their role in uh, international security, political economy, and things like that. And so by the time I got to my uh, doctoral work, I was thinking about ways to connect international relations, security, and natural resources, environmental issues. I I came to Agent Orange, I thought, as a perfect intersection between the two. Uh, That became my dissertation, and ultimately I revised that uh, into the book that came out in 2011 called The Invention of Ecocide. So that's sort of the, the origin story of that project. What did you learn about Agent Orange? Like what, what were some giant takeaways that you really kind of absorbed? Because like I was telling you a little bit off air is that from talking to Ed, um, learning about Agent Orange, but also talking to Bartow Elmore, who wrote a book called Seed Money, um, I'm picking up notes of a lot of things where I don't think that Uh, maybe a lot of their methods that they use, they're probably still doing today. I think there's a lot of things you can find correlations to with issues that are going on now that probably stem back from maybe even the start of that. I mean, you can pinpoint the JFK assassination to many other issues that go on today too. So there's always a linking point in the start of something of where something started to going bad and it was never corrected. Now there's a lot of issues. And the one thing that I think I thought the world would agree on is that maybe environmental issues, but yet we're divided on that as well too. And even that seems to have gotten its hand into the politics part where you start realizing it all boils down there into areas I really wish that we could find ways to cut severs from. Uh, Mostly, especially if we talk about environmental issues, I think that's heavily drained in with politics. Now, if you don't believe it's happening, you're a right winger. And if you don't, if you do believe it's happening, you're on the left or something, which is to me, it's like, oh, I don't, I just, it it gets so in the weeds, uh, no pun intended, to where (laughs) we're really at this disconfusion point. And I'm just curious to what you've learned, not only from Agent Orange, but your pathway kind of with the environment as well, too. Yeah. So, As a historian, I think the most fundamental thing to do is to look around, see what are some of the big stories in the world right now, and then reverse engineer that narrative, what was happening that got us to where we are now. So I think one of the 
the big things that you could look around today is it's normative or it's it's sort of regular thinking to appreciate that uh, the global environment is all connected, that uh, the destruction of the rainforest in the Amazon matters in California. Uh, wildfires in Australia matters in Siberia. There's an interconnectedness to these things that has a particular origin point in history. So earlier than the Vietnam era, earlier than the political tumult of the late 1960s, the way that people conceptualized the environment or environmentalism was much more of a conservationist or a preservationist mode. It was about preserving rugged beauty in the West. It was about being concerned about local pollution and nimbyism, not in my backyard kinds of concerns. As a result of the Vietnam War, which on the international security perspective, what we say is that it destroyed the Cold War con consensus in the United States. This consensus goes back all the way to the origins of the Iron Curtain, the end of World War II, where large majorities, pluralities of Americans came to a consensus that the Soviet Union needed to be contained, that there was a concern about a domino effect, that the primary purpose of the United States on the global stage was confronting the Soviet threat and the, the spread of communism. That was, at the most basic level, the, the reason the war in Vietnam became Americanized. And by the late 1960s, with all of the carnage on television and Walter Cronkite and what we call Middle America turning against the war, that really eroded this consensus that, as I said, existed basically since right after World War II. Agent Orange is, is one particular area, one particular aspect of the war that people were horrified at. And so the general uh, move to come out against the Vietnam War, the general understanding that in the 1960s, people are concerned about overpopulation. People are concerned about industrialization and pollution and, and, and all of these issues. Agent Orange was one of those issues in the war where particular people could look at this, focus on the environmental destruction, connect that to the larger existential question of what are we doing? Why are we even doing this? And so that's, that's one of those areas where scientists went to Vietnam, they studied the effects, they were horrified at the ecological consequences, they raised massive concerns about the potential health effects of exposure to Agent Orange. These are debates that continue to this day. And they articulated a vision that connected a global security, a human security that transcended political differences. Doesn't matter if you're Soviet, you're American, you're Chinese, you're Brazilian, we're all humans, we're all on this planet, we all share common security threats. And the one they articulated in a time of rising population, in a time of food shortages, in a time of pollution, we need to be focused on environmental issues at the global level. So the scientists who studied Agent Orange in Vietnam, some of the scientists who even had a hand in creating the science behind the herbicides going all the way back to World War II, they articulated this powerful vision connecting protest in Vietnam, protest against the Vietnam War with a larger security framework that transcended political divides that was something that all human beings should be concerned about. So that's, that's the sort of narrative where when we look at what was happening in the 1960s and we connect that to, we don't even think twice nowadays about connecting all of these environmental issues. I trace the way we see the world now from an environmental global perspective back to these debates that were happening in the late 60s and early 70s. Well, one thing with Agent Orange that I thought was curious was how come any of these scientists didn't bring up the points of maybe what it would do to the land and now you can look at that as like you can't monday quarterback or monday night quarterback but at the same time they were from what i learned from ed was that they were being not really focused on that area they were worried about the war they were trying to win the war and any really person that could have a budding opinion it was kind of like well this is what we're doing with and we got to do it now so you're rushing so fast you can't think of all these issues and i mean that's kind of what happens today see the thing is with agent orange i think it woke a lot of people up because when you see people that are suffering from side effects when you see the damage that it did not only to the land it was more of a a personal thing because people thought that that could happen to their home that could happen to them even in vietnam for instance when we talk about uh what is it napalm fires napalm fires that's the easiest example of why you should not use that weapon as you see the damage that it does not only to the landscape but to the people see 
we like like with the topic of renewable energies. What I've learned is that people like stuff when they don't see it. Like you can build turbines. I'm pro wind power, but I don't want to see the turbines if they're next to my home. So you're more than happy to go to another country to do it there where you don't get to see it. But that ravages that land. You think people would have a bigger respect for the environment or at least where they live. Um, I think that's why mutually assured destruction, that idea of using a nuke against another country, you're going to destroy both places. The one thing about a nuke that I can relate this to is it, ir it irradiates the land. It irradiates that part and makes it inhabitable. It's kind of like Chernobyl. You can't go there. You can't live there. You can't do all these things without suffering from severe health effects. So, I mean, that's a point for mutually assured destruction, why people may, might not have blown each other up. And maybe I'm going off on a little bit of a rant here, but I think people recognize an issue that can stem to the environment, for instance, when it realizes the damage that it can do to a person, something that they can relate to. I mean, we see landscapes get torn up all the time, but trying to find empathy in that when they're going to build a mall or a McDonald's is very, very difficult. So you got to find the, the string that attaches them to having that empathy, and that's through people. That's through showing destruction of another person's home, people having to move because of a California fire, people having to move because of Australian fires. A lot of people became aware of that situation and were donating money and started to care a lot because they realized someone just lost their home or someone was being affected. Now, if we can translate that down to something even more crucial than that, and that is what is going into our food as well too. I mean, that's a prime example of getting people hooked into what the damage we're doing to the environment. And that's showing them that these methods of growing um, and always the refuting point is usually, well, we don't have starvation really as much as we did before because of all these GMOs and all these crops that we spray chemicals with. And it's like, yeah, but what are the long-term health effects for people? Are you seeing more people suffer from severe intestinal disorders? Are you suffering all this? That is directly linked to you are literally poisoning your own food. And I, maybe I gave you a, a lot there, um, but I, it, they're all good string theory kind of points to bring back to the global aspect of you need to be paying attention to the moves that you make. You can't just do something because you see the prize at the end of the tunnel. You have to think of every step that leads up there. That means if you do this, is it going to affect something down the line? You have to ask these questions, which I'm seeing a lot of scientists really ask those questions now, which is I always worry about ethics about stuff. A few points about the inability to keep Agent Orange out of mind, out of the viewpoint of Americans. So the first and most obvious is when American servicemen came back from Vietnam, suffering a range of maladies, lost limbs, damaged brains, blinded, all the horrors of war. One of them included their assertions of various illnesses that resulted from Agent Orange. So Agent Orange quite literally connected ravages against the land with ravages against the body that could not stay in the theater of war, could not stay across the globe in Vietnam where it was out of sight, out of mind. These, these problems came home. Another, of course, is that Vietnam was, as we say, it's the first really televised war. This is before social media, it's before Twitter and TikTok, it's before 24-7 news, but every single day in the evening news, every morning in the papers, it was covered. All of these issues were covered in a way that was unique. It was, it was the first time that the American public could understand on a daily basis the horrors of war. Not that Vietnam was necessarily any more horrible or, or, or torturous than, than earlier wars, but it was in your face. It was, it was inescapable. Um, on the question of destruction, environmental destruction, you know, one of the things that's unique about herbicidal warfare you made this point, you know, if you if you uh, if you remove a forest and you put up a Walmart or something like that, all environmental destruction, all ecological degradation that happens throughout history, it has some economic or positive desire. There is an outcome that that is productive. There's a reason to use resources to clear land for human growth. Now. We can criticize that, we can talk about the ways that it should or should not be regulated, but it's all for some productive human output. When you look at herbicidal warfare in Vietnam, when you look at the Agent Orange program, it is environmental destruction for the sake of environmental destruction. And if you want to say in the, you know, the Army, the, 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 the Johnson, the Nixon administration, they certainly did, they said, well, this is a vital tool for a positive outcome, which is 
the destruction of the North Vietnamese army and the guerrilla insurgency in South Vietnam. So that would be the defense of, of, of using these weapons. But now let's go back to the collapse of the Cold War consensus, the basic idea in the United States among you know, large percentages of, of, of Americans, if you're going to question the very reason we're in Vietnam in the first place, then the logic of using Agent Orange to destroy the environment, that sort of collapses in and of itself. And so the productive benefit that comes from clearing out wooded areas so that Americans can fight the way they want to out in the open, not against guerrilla uh, insurgents who are, who are hiding out in the jungle, that logic no longer holds much of a candle. So that's, that's the way that you get around the, the, the defense of using Agent Orange as a productive tool in order to win the war. Is that just because like we look at it now differently because maybe our not I wouldn't say our knowledge, but I would probably say our more we're selfish in, in other ways, but we're not as selfish in that aspect of things like that military thing was a, a quick tactic to win. It was a tactic to clear out the brush so no one could hide and you could just uh, you could win the war by annihilating troops that way. But you get into this aspect now where people aren't going to use that because they realize they, did, they either did more damage to themselves. And now you have, I guess, maybe more people that are conscious conscious of it especially in the younger generations and with the info that we have now but there's we're selfish in other ways obviously but in this way we're not when it comes to the weapons that we use and the things that we do i mean technology's advancing we're going from nukes now to hypersonic missiles and then it's, that's going to take on a whole nother cyber thing where you'll probably see some other catastrophes happen on a different scale maybe not environmental but another kind of system in a sense maybe cyber um but it, it just raises question, is it the science that we have that's maybe changed, or are we still exactly the same as we were during the Vietnam War? Two really interesting points. So first, on the military efficacy of Agent Orange, it is widely assumed, and you seem to indicate, the Army, the Marines, they wanted to use these herbicides to clear out the jungles. That was the theory. That was one of the solutions that they had for counterinsurgency warfare. One of the great ironies of the Agent Orange program is called Operation Ranch Hand in Vietnam. So when you look at a rainforest, a triple canopy rainforest, if you can picture, you know, really thick vegetation, what does the ground look like? It's dark. And the reason it's dark is because all of these trees, all of these plants are growing up. They are competing for sunlight at the top of the canopy. Now, when you have a defoliation mission, when you have these enormous C-123 cargo planes that are spraying millions of gallons of Agent Orange and other herbicides over an area larger than the size of the state of Massachusetts, just for a, side, you know, a sense of scale, just how much of Vietnam was sprayed during the war. Agent Orange and these other herbicides, they did a great job of destroying that top cover and killing lots of trees. But here's where the irony comes in. Now that you have that top cover of the rainforest that's taken out, where does that sunlight go? That sunlight goes all the way to the, to the, to the floor of the, of the jungle. What happens when that, when that sunlight hits the floor? Now you have all kinds of invasive species, imperata grasses, bamboo, that are now growing on the floor. And here's where it gets really crazy. Where are the insurgents? They're on the, they're on the forest floor cover. So in many ways, even though the whole point of Agent Orange was to clear out these jungles so that it would be more difficult for the insurgents to have a place to fight, it actually, in many cases, gave them better cover than they had before. So it's just, it's just one of many ways that we can see war planning hits into reality. There are unintended consequences uh, and, and things like that. Now, as to the reason why we haven't seen herbicides used in future wars, um, I think you're absolutely right that there are now there are now different ways of conceptualizing war, conceptualizing the environment, but the reason why herbicides are no longer used in war has a very specific legislative context. And it's like this. So before World War I, there was a lot of concern about the use of this new class of weapons that were actually seen in the theater of World War I, chemical weapons, mustard, chlorine. This created, we like to say that, you know, the industrial revolution 
went to went to the battlefield in World War One. We now have uh, uh, repeating machine guns. We have tanks. We have planes. We have incendiary weapons, and we now have this new class of chemical chemical weapons. After World War One, the collective horror of the world community came together to sign the Geneva Protocol of 1925. The Geneva Protocol of 1925 made it a crime in international law to engage in chemical and biological warfare. The idea was, you know, we're always going to have war, but this is a level of horror on the battlefield that the world community should come together and ban. And that's one of the reasons why, if you look at World War II, we really don't see the use of these weapons, even though, you know, it was no holds barred during World War II. Firebombing, nuclear weapons, genocide, total war, you name it. But we didn't see this class of weapons being used. One of the reasons is because of normative behavior as it relates to the Geneva Protocol. The United States, in its isolationist move in the 1920s, it never ratified the Geneva Protocol. Now, the scientist who I mentioned earlier who went to Vietnam to study what was happening, they were concerned about, you know, they were concerned about the health effects, they were concerned about the ecological effects, they recognized that the herbicides that were being used in Vietnam were military grade. That's one of the reasons why dioxin, that really dangerous byproduct that comes from, from 245T, when military producers are meeting the demand of the Pentagon, the DOD is saying in Vietnam, you need to make more and more of this stuff as fast as you can. The military contractors who made these chemicals, now we see 2,4-D, that's in Roundup today. You can go to Home Depot, you can buy, you know, you could buy, you could spray it on your lawn right now. During the Vietnam War, when these military contractors were looking to make this chemical as fast as possible, they heated up to 2,4-5-T uh, hotter than they should have. That's what created this, this dioxin. So basically, it was a, a massive last, um, uh, laboratory experiment in Vietnam. And these scientists wanted to see what was going on. They came back and they were legitimately horrified and they were looking for a legislative mechanism to stop not only the use of herbicides in Vietnam, but think to the future. If they're concerned and they were about the global environment, about future wars, about insurgencies that would take place in tropical climates all over the world, in South America, in Africa, in other parts of Asia, how could they get a legislative ruling in the books that would not only prevent the United States from engaging in this type of warfare, but other countries as well? And so people like Arthur Galston, who was a biologist at Yale, Matthew Messelson uh, at, at Harvard, they articulated in Congress in 1969 a vision where they said, we need to ratify the Geneva Protocol of 1925, and we should recognize that Agent Orange should be considered a chemical weapon. It's not a chemical weapon used against humans like mustard or, or chlorine gas, but it is a weapon of war, and it is a war of ecocide. That's where that term comes from, my book, The Invention of Ecocide. They articulated a vision where the destruction of environments, which is by definition harmful to the people who live there, it is a combination of environmental destruction and genocide. It's not the willful destruction of a people, it's the willful destruction of an environment. And as a result of the environmental destruction, you are complicit, you are capable of destroying a people as well. So they brought this idea to Congress in the late 1960s. It's a very different Congress than one we see today. It was a Congress that was already inclined to be highly critical of the, the, the new Nixon administration, was looking for a way out of, out of uh, uh, the Vietnam War. And they agreed with the scientific vision. They agreed with the idea that uh, uh, Agent Orange should be understood as something that should be banned under the Geneva Protocol of, of 1974, of, I'm sorry, of 1925. And in 1974, as part of Gerald Ford's, you know, putting this long national nightmare of the, uh, of the Watergate crisis in Vietnam behind, behind the Americans collectively, he agreed not to use uh, Agent Orange or other herbicides in war and went on to suggest ratification uh, of the Geneva Protocol. So that specifically is why we have not seen Agent Orange used in subsequent wars by the United States or others. So when you think about it, it's a really interesting and important point because how many dictators, how many insurgencies have existed 
you know, Central America in the 1980s, the list goes on and on. We really haven't seen the use of Agent Orange and other herbicides in war. It's because of the legislative victory that these scientists were able to achieve in the 1970s. Historians love to argue about, you know, when you look at all of the protests that happened during the Vietnam War on campus, the connections with the women's liberation movement, the civil rights protests of the late 1960s, you can ask, and you know, to get back to that fundamental question you asked at the beginning of our conversation, some of the big takeaways. So historians of the Vietnam era, they like to ask that fundamental question. All of these protests during the Vietnam era, did they change government policy? Did the occupant of the White House, did all of the military officials at the Pentagon, did their policy, did their strategy, did their tactics in Vietnam change as a result of all these protests that we were seeing around the country? Now, that issue has been debated hotly. There's, you could fill a, a, a bookshelf full of, full of articles and books about that very topic. I argue in, in, in the invention of ecocide on the specific topic of what I like to call boutique protests. These scientists, they were establishment figures. Matthew Messelson, he knew Henry Kissinger from Harvard. These were not college kids. These were established eminent scientists on the specific issue of protesting the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam. They were able to change government policy. The herbicide program ended earlier than it otherwise would have. And they put in place, as I said, a program where we have not seen the use of Agent Orange since, since the Vietnam War. And I think that's a pretty significant uh, achievement in, in the history of anti-war protest. It definitely is. But do you see notes of Agent Orange? Like when I mean notes, I'm talking about like their idea of torching the fields, for instance. You can take that into another, met another metaphor when we talk about bugs. That's our method for anything when we talk about crops that are uh, infected with pesticides or anything of that sort. It's torch the fields. Now, it might not affect us or it might have, you know, wash off your fruit and vegetables before you eat them or something like that. But I mean, in a sense, it plays a bigger part where I start wondering, maybe it's not our government, but maybe it's the fact that we let business get attached to so many things where they might have found a way in and be able to get a recipe to make a really good insecticide. Now you're still using something that might if it was affecting people at the same rate it affects insects, it might have the same notes as Agent Orange. One of the one I'm of the I things might that be happens, speculating. I'm sorry, but no, that's no, a, no. Okay. What one of the things that happens? I mean, you know, talking about insecticides, talking about using chemicals in agricultural purposes, right? Mm -hmm. After the Vietnam War. We also see, it's not only because of Agent Orange, but it's part of the conversation. As I said, we see this rising concern about our stewardship of the land, more concern about our connection to the environment, greater concerns about the kinds of foods that we eat and the health impacts that they have. All of these things are connected. And I would say that all of the concerns that start to get articulated, you know, with I mean, look at the origins of Whole Foods and the natural food craze, craze of the 1970s that, that is with us today. GMOs, organic food, all of these things, they all stem from this basic concern about asking new types of questions about how humans interact with their natural environments. And the story is ongoing. There isn't a single success for which we can now say all our problems are behind us. All the questions about profit motive versus government regulation versus responsibility of consumers to understand what they're buying. A lot of these things, these conversations, they really start because of the new ways we were thinking about the global environment and our relationship to the environment that do begin in the 1960s. Do you think that people are, I guess, more aware of the, the, the path that they're on that might not be one that they necessarily agree with? Like even we can, if we take it back to Asian Orange again, a lot of those people probably aware that they're on a bad path, but maybe other things that they didn't have power to be able to control. And it kind of was just a one push effort was kind of be funneling in a direction. I mean, how many people now can be swayed in a sense? I mean, it, it, it becomes difficult to recognize that you're doing bad when you're you're on a path to it. It's the same thing with like Watergate. I don't think everybody in the CIA realized what they were doing bad until someone called them out on it. You know what I mean? It's very difficult I always like to tell, I teach, I teach classes on these topics, and I always like to remind the students, 
You know, when we look at the 1930s in Europe, we see where the story goes. We see what happens in September of 1939. We see World War II break out. But when you look at the decisions that national leaders were making in the 1930s, they didn't see the end of the story. They couldn't look into the future. So you have to understand historical actors in real time in their own place. So CIA agents and, and Watergate, if it does need to be pointed out to them, maybe it needs to be pointed out by journalists, maybe it needs to be pointed out retrospectively by historians. The bigger point is that when we look at history, when we look at human agency, we have to recognize that we have the benefit of hindsight but they didn't. And that invites both a level of empathy and hopefully something approaching objectivity in the way that we assess their motives, their values, the things that inspired them to do what they did. That's why I consider historians so important, especially people that study like really, really past historical events that I think everyone's probably heard about it. If you ask anybody what Agent Orange is, probably someone's heard the name or their grandpa ranting it at like a dinner table or something like that. But it's important to remember this stuff um, and never really forget it. We got to move on past it as well, too. But you have to remember that there are horrible actions that have consequences when you're not thinking about what you're doing. And that is exactly a clear case example of that as well, too. I mean, we said winning a war, you, they did a horrible thing that we've learned from and we've made laws, thank God, to be able to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But I mean, even now, are we still making the same mistakes? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of examples you could probably point at to we're making a lot of really big mistakes that we should probably be thinking about, but a lot of it's action. And I just go with time, everything fades away. It's the same linear cycle over and over and over again. It's like that through history. You say history is the best predictor of the future. You go, yeah, but who's reading the history books? Nobody's reading them. <laughs> well, Robbie, it warms my heart that, that you appreciate that, that we need historians. I believe that so strongly. Um, I, you know, there's many... When you ask a historian, what kind of historian are you? There's a few ways that you can answer that. You can answer that the, the topics that you study, the ideologies that form your way of approaching history, or the, the, uh, the people who, who employ you, the kind of history that you do. So on that third point, generally I'm a historian of science. By the topics that I look at, uh, I'm a historian of environmental issues and international security. But on the question of the utility of historians, one of the reasons I'm an institutional historian, by that I mean I do work for institutions, for their own history. I did that at the Department of State. I did that at the American Institute of Physics, and I'm doing that now at Caltech, the California Institute of Technology. It's because I believe very strongly that historians within an institutional framework, you have to work for a great institution, you have to believe in their mission. Historians are there precisely because the people who are making the decisions, the people who are putting together that strategy, the operational vision for what our organization is, what we're doing, where we're headed into the future, you need that historical perspective to understand, well, what were we doing 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years in the past? You study that past, you write reports about it, you get people smart about a particular topic, you brief people in the field, and you actually use history, not just for the general fuzzily defined notion that our past is valuable, but for specific daily, we need to understand what's going on because this is absolutely essential to what we're doing today. So I really, you know, I, I, I have tried to pursue my career in a way where every day I recognize that the value of history is not, it's not just, <laughs> uh, forgive this, it's not just an academic construct. It's something that we, we really need to be informed with on a daily basis. So that's, that's the product, that is the service that I try to bring every day throughout my career, bringing that history into what's happening right now and using that to chart a better future. What, um, like, if you could give me an example of a topic that one that's really caught your eye besides Agent Orange, one's especially going on right now. Because I, I think I, I read something about you that said you were interested in space 
And I, I brought in this idea, um, which I've talked to plenty of space people before. And I like the topic. I like talking about UFOs, but I also like talking about space law and going into space, space colonization. And I had someone really kind of shatter my dreams on this aspect of space colonization, saying it's never going to happen because space has already been weaponized. And I go, yeah, I mean, do we even have the right to leave Earth? You know, this idea of colonizing on another planet, you get into this aspect of like, we're not ready. We, it's, it's, it's this idea, like when we talk about the shifts from like Agent Orange to where we're at now, we talk about, you know, making sure you're thoroughly checking all your bases before you make a decision or something like that. I get to this point where I go, what wakes people up is something that can be affecting all of us. For instance, the pandemic, coronavirus affected all of us. So you got a lot of people to act, but then when one country does better, that country forgets about the other ones that are out there. You start getting this disconnect. It's kind of like McDonald's, for instance. I don't think the guy meant to make people fat. I don't think he thought it was going to do that, but he's also making money. And it's hard to think about future generations when you're just seeing money because you're talking about a hypothetical situation. And I go, it's that disconnect. You get disconnected. And I think even with talking with a bunch of Buddhists, how they're so connected into their environment and talking about the universe and thing. A lot of environmentalists are around that spiritual path, this kind of thing where it talks about the universe as this thing. Now, there are some that are more scientifical, but they kind of tackle it in the same aspects of they understand more than what is about themselves. And I think you get that through anything. I think you can get that through history lens. You understand that there's more going on when you're hearing about different accounts from different sides. I think you get it from so many different aspects. And that's really, really hard for the public to keep aware. I'll connect. Absolutely. I do have an interest in space. I'll connect that with the <laughs> project I did at the State Department. So right now, one of the concerns, I mean, there's so many concerns at the global level, the fallout of uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, my second volume at the State Department, I worked in the office of the historian. We published the Foreign Relations of the United States series, FRUS, we call it FRUS. FRUS goes back to the Lincoln administration, and it's the official diplomatic history of the United States, publication of formerly declassified telegrams, memoranda of conversation, intelligence reports, things like that. The second volume I did uh, was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. That was the first of three volumes documenting uh, the totality of the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. Uh, the first volume, it's out, it's published online. You could, you could take a look at it. That volume right there now, we say that history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. People right now in policymaking positions, and they do at the State Department because they do read these documents, we do those briefings, they are always enriched by recognizing past crises in order to understand what's going on right now. You have to take a historical perspective when you look at Vladimir Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine, his motivations, his sense of grievance, where he was when he came of age in the Cold War, the role that Afghanistan played in the collapse of the Soviet Union, all of these narratives, all of these historical nuggets and themes, they're present in this collection of documents. And now to come back to the present, when we're looking at uh, space, for example, you know, the ISS, is, is threatened right now because of, of these crazy things that the Russians are saying about, you know, threatening collaboration in space, threatening space science, uh, ending relationships with, with so many of its, of its international partners, uh, fallout from potentially a larger war, all of these national security concerns, because now, as you say, we, space is weaponized and it is only going to continue to get weaponized. To understand the Soviet and now Russian perspective in a historical lens is, is, is crucial to understanding what's happening right now. You can never look at past documents or past books and see a game plan. You can never look at that and say, as a result of what we're seeing here, we know what's happening now and we see where things are headed. The best that we can say is, that perspective will only enrich your understanding of everything and having a better understanding is always going to lead to better outcomes. You never want to go into a situation not understanding its historical origins. Well, it goes back to what I was asking earlier, when, if we think we've changed. I mean, 
from a record standpoint, the way societies have gone, not just this one, but other societies as well, and a historical standpoint, I mean, is it any different? We talk about mutually assured destruction, or I talked about mutually assured destruction with nukes, but we're destroying ourselves anyway. Like there's this thing where I'm not trying to bring it to like this grave tone of society's going to reset, but I mean, there's always constant division. There's always a problem. And if there isn't a problem, there's a focus to finding a new one. And I don't know where that goes. And none of it's really in, in a sense of a beneficial. A lot of it comes from an area of pointing fingers at another area. Like if we could focus on a problem, if we could take off another issue that's going on in the world, such as maybe uh, whoever insider trading, let's toss that one out there because I love old Pelosi. But if you say that one, for instance, if you take the problem off, you know, tweeting about your politicians or fighting on Twitter, why don't we focus on the fact of like I was saying earlier, insecticides, making sure that they're done okay so your research is being done on it so you're not having your food be contaminated with horrible chemicals that might have a, a health effect or something like that. I mean it just seems like whether – like best example I could honestly give you would be when we got out of Afghanistan – I had someone saying, great, now let's go to Ukraine. Like, let's uh, not even like a month later. I was like, weren't you just complaining that we should have never been in Afghanistan? And now you're talking about going over to Ukraine. I'm like, I get it. It sucks what's going on with that. But at the same time, it's like, we need to take a five on the bench just for a minute. Like, we need to sit here and think things through because it, there's always something that you have to be involved in. And I go, I get it. You, everyone either wants to help or what they see is their side helping. It's, it gets very political again. But I'm like, this is something that should have no political aspect. There are plenty of issues that we could be focusing on that don't need to be linked into politics. I mean, I hate that that the, saying that someone will just go, well, farming's politics, depending on whatever. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. But when it comes to the overall goal, we all have the same aspect in mind, which is, you know, getting more food when it comes to growing food. Now, is it being done effectively? I think both parties can agree on trying to find an effective way to do that. I'm not really left or right in any sense. I honestly don't care for politics, but. Whenever someone brings that up, I'm like, that's going to that's going to set this whole place down. It's going to tear everything away when if we can't have a conversation, if we can't have these types of discussions, if we can't learn from the past and see how everything seems to be politically motivated. It really is going to tear us down. Ravi, to go back to uh, the distinction between mutually assured destruction and other ways that we're destroying ourselves, I think the, the distinction there is one of time scale, right? There are any number of ways that the human global population, we are destroying ourselves. We're destroying our environments. We're destroying our bodies. We're destroying, you know, basically, I mean, that's that's what the word sustainability is all about. We talk about sustainability in the negative because of all of the things that we're doing that are not sustainable to uh, all, all humans, to, to a, a long and prosperous life for people across the globe. Mutually assured destruction stands out because that's just the off switch, right? That's that kills everything fast. Yeah. And so that's why it's so scary, because it's the one method of destruction that happens so quickly and so completely that the prospects of adaptation are completely lost. They're destroyed with everything else. So whether we're talking about insecticides, we're talking about insider trading, we're, I mean, any problem, hundreds of problems, we could go through, we could spend hours naming all of them. The hope, the idea is with policy, with science, with technology, with diplomacy, that we can always stay a few steps ahead of the problem. Or at least we're making progress on a problem that's getting worse but as things get better with technology, with cooperation, there can be there could be leaps and bounds to to find solutions against all of these particular problems. Now, one trajectory in my career, because I did get so concerned about, you know, the futility of diplomacy and the 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 the, the baseness of, of people sometimes that made me a little cynical about looking at diplomacy and and, and international security and things like that. A real pivot that I decided to make in about year 10 of when I was at the State Department um, to go back to when I was a graduate student and I loved this combination of environmental issues and international security. Uh, by year 10 uh, at the State Department, I started to think about, I'm so interested in science, I'm so interested in technology, 
Uh, I've pursued every possible area where I could look at these things within the State Department, but State Department, it has a very different mission. It has some aspects as they relate to science and technology and things like that. But that's when I decided to look for new opportunities more firmly rooted in a scientific perspective, because I believe, and it's a, it's a complicated issue, science is not always for good, but an embrace of technology, an embrace of the scientific method, and understanding that science at its best always pursues truth and brings out, I think, the best in people and the way that scientists do their work and collaborate with each other. That's where I decided to more firmly root my career in the history of science. And that's how I got to the American Institute of Physics. It's a wonderful organization in, in, in College Park, Maryland, right off of the University of Maryland campus where they, they do all kinds of uh, uh, interesting programs for the physics community. They, um, they're the umbrella organization for so many of the physics uh, sub-communities like vacuum physicists and condensed matter physicists and the astronomers. And so they all have their scientific societies. The American Institute of Physics is sort of the umbrella organization that, that is, houses all of these scientific, these physics societies. One of the things the American Institute of Physics has is the Niels Bohr Library. It's the largest physics library in the world. Incredible connect collection. You can go look at amazing manuscripts from the 16th century. You could look at original transcripts from Einstein and Niels Bohr, and they have an oral history program that dates back to the early 1960s. When I joined AIP uh, in 2019, the pandemic started. We were all on Zoom, just like we are right now. And it was an amazing opportunity to uh, interview almost 500 physicists from all around the world where we explored all of these issues, where we talked about their investigations of the nature of space-time and the structure of an atom and the way to achieve renewable energy. And it was just a great pleasure seeing how these scientists, which are who are integrated, they're funded in the national government, they work in academic institutions, they work in industry, and how they're dedicated both to fundamental discovery, just understanding how nature works, and then in so many cases, translating that discovery to making our world better, more sustainable, and to do everything we can so that we continuously adapt against all of our problems, and hopefully there will never be a mutually assured destruction, which obviously would wipe all of that right off the map. It's refreshing. It's definitely refreshing when I talk to an astronomer or someone who's, I, I would say, a topic of science that isn't in the political eye. It seems like a lot of medicine is getting attached to politics now. A lot of medicine is getting attached and swayed and people put in positions that they don't feel like they want to talk about or anything of that sort. But one thing that's open is astronomy because there's not really a whole lot of things to be able to talk about that, especially physics as well, too. Now, depending on what physics area, but if you're studying like dark matter or some kind of quantum physics or something like that, you don't have any politicians that are reaching out to you. Or you don't have any certain things that feel like you have a reliance to give an answer. Um it really brings in why I've been getting interested in AI, for instance. Like, I feel like AI could be used for so many good things, but my biggest area of concern is I feel like with someone is going to try and find a way to make money off of it or going to take it down a really dark rabbit hole that I feel like we should not let happen. And I think that especially if we talk about AI fixing environmental issues, you know, fixing areas when it comes to maybe discovering renewable energies. Right now, they're using it to be able to figure out how to the Milky Way was created. Like what was before the Big Bang? I mean, it's using a bunch of probable scenarios and data is getting chunked into it, but the people that are funneling the data have no intention of swaying it a certain way. They're just trying to give it the best information possible. And it's like, that's what it was about. That's like the historian aspect of things. It's like when I talk to a historian, you don't have any political, I mean, you could, some historians will have a political motive, I guess, but on the basis of whatever you study or whatever you're talking about, you're giving the facts of what happened. You're not really going out of the realm, I guess, on, maybe on my show, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but you're really just giving an accurate description, an accurate kind of account of what happened. And for a lot of people now, a lot of issues, especially we talk about future problems, a lot of that is speculating and it's in the basis of certain decisions or what might people feel strongly with biased wise, like depending if you think that the earth is warming or not. Well, I'm going to show you a bunch of evidence that shows that it's not warming. Well, it's like, well, what about the stuff that shows that it is happening? And everyone's kind of on the board that it is happening there. It's it, that's, that's the thing. It gets hit into a political spot. 
it gets put in this position where now people question everything, which is good in some aspects, but it's also, they're just questions after questions, after questions, after questions, and no answers are getting solved. We're stuck in a state of lull. Honestly, I see us regressing back in a sense as well, too. There's a lot of things I thought we'd be way farther past. I mean, even the Jetsons predicted buying cars in 20, whatever, but I'm just <laughs> saying with like renewable energies, I think that's a long-term problem. I think um, we're not, we're not really good at problems over a long period of time. We're really good at like, you need to fix it right now. And I think a lot of people feel like they got more time or maybe they feel like there's no time left. And it's so divided where there's not even a discussion being made on it. I mean, I don't, the environments, I, I could tell you that it is, it's not, not warming. It is warming. But everyone's kind of like on the side of like, we can't even have a discussion about the environment anymore. We can have a discussion on other things. And that's only going to leak into bigger things. Next thing you know, you're going to see space get hijacked. Well, then who gets the moon? Who gets Mars? Who gets this? Who's going to be the billionaire that leads us there? And I'm like, I hope we're better than that. <laughs> you know, you mentioned artificial intelligence and how it can be utilized to go into some dark areas, right? Yeah. I would say there is always going to be, because there always has been a fundamental human urge to discover, and that cannot be stopped, and it shouldn't be stopped. And the idea that there are areas of scientific inquiry, like machine learning, like artificial intelligence, they, we have to embrace the reality that these technologies, these ways of knowing, can be utilized in very harmful ways. And so there, the, what's true today has always been true. Science has never existed in a vacuum separate from the rest of the human experience of regulation, of politics, of war. It's always been part of that. It might be, you know, aspects of it might be ivory tower. It might be in a bit of a bubble, the image of a scientist alone in their laboratory, just ensconced in their, in, in their work and their scientific discourse and things like that. But the reality in large scale is that science is a part of the human condition. And with AI, with, with green technology, with warfare, with all scientific advances, the name of the game always was, and it always has to continue to be a healthy relationship between society, trust and government, good governance, and regulation so that those technologies are harnessed in a way that is maximally helpful and not harmful to people. So that's always the challenge. That's always the, the goal of, of utilizing science so that advances the interests of as many people as possible. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's highly problematic um, and it's, it's a pendulum swing. History doesn't just sort of proceed in a linear direction uh, you know, toward progress or not progress. It's always a generational struggle, achieving that balance between discovery, figuring out what that discovery is for, and making sure that it is put to good use and not to harmful use. What do you think about like the next five years, next 10 years? That might be a weird question, but it seems like you probably think about this a little bit too. Oh, in, in what regard? What are we looking at in five or 10 years? Well, what do you see an area of concern and what would you see an area that we think that's going to end up fixing itself? I don't see the topic of renewable energies really getting fixed in the next 10 years, but you might have different thoughts. I'll give you a micro story. So I met a okay. guy, he does, he, he um, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has a huge Porsche culture. It's a great place. Canyon driving, uh, this is Automobile Center USA. People love their Porsches and they keep their Porsches here, right? There's no, there's very little rain. There's no winters. There's no, there's no corrosion. There's no salty roads. So people have, they drive perfectly good Porsches from the 60s and 70s. And I met a mechanic. That's his entire business of Porsche owners coming to him. And that's where you do their repairs. He, he inherited this business from his father. His father came to California in the early 1970s to start the business, and, he, and he, he kept it up. He now has this knowledge of Porsches from the you know 50s and 60s and 70s. You can't take these cars to the Porsche dealer. These guys don't know what to do with them. They're not trained. They're not trained on these things. So immediately I asked him, I said, look at the, that the electric cars that even Porsche is putting out right now, the Taycan. They're you know, more and more coming out. I asked him, I said, you know, you're a small business owner. Do you see yourself moving into getting certified 
on EV repairs. And he gave me a perspective where he said, obviously, this is my career. I've thought about this. I try to be strategic. He ran the numbers. He looked at the cost. He said to himself, you know, I'm 45 years old. I see myself doing this for another 15 years. EVs will not reach a level of market uh, saturation where new EV sales are going to become so dominant and all of the old Porsches that are still on the road that people want to love and maintain, they'll still be around. So for all of the hype about EVs and GM saying they want to electrify their fleet by 2035, which if you look at the numbers, I don't see how that's realistic at all. This was a micro analysis that made a whole lot of sense to me that when you really think deeply about an issue in a way that you're not just like commentating on society from your armchair, you're looking at your own business. You're looking at what do I need to do to stay relevant and, and viable for the remainder of my career? He looked at that situation and he said, the transition is not going to happen fast enough so that it makes sense for me to go through this enormous investment of resources and time and money to make my shop an EV certified repair shop, because that's not where things are headed. So the five or 10 years, you know, I think the better way to look at that from a historian's point of view is if you look five or 10 years in the past, right? What are those new realities that we might have envisioned, like the Jetsons, right? What are things going to look like? I think in five and 10 years, assuming we don't have mutually assured destruction, who knows what's going to happen? China obviously is looking very carefully at the global reaction to, to what's happening with Russia right now, as it thinks about its plans, its designs on, on Taiwan, right? Those are the kinds of things that when we look at technological advance, when we look at technological adaptation, there will always be a few game changers. There will always be, you know, I mean, the development of the mRNA COVID vaccine that uh, will, it has and it will in an imperfect, and, an imperfect and plotting way, it will ultimately get us out of this pandemic. Those are the kinds of game changing technologies that it's very hard to pinpoint what fundamental discovery can be utilized against a particular crisis. But in five or 10 years, we're going to see a few more of those game-changing technologies that make things incrementally better. We will see greater adaptation of renewable energies. We will see more EVs come onto market, but it's not going to be in five years, all of a sudden, we're all driving a, a, an electric vehicle. Things happen in, a, in glacial terms. They don't happen very quickly. So those, you know, what's going to be different in five or 10 years that we can obviously point to now, the big differences are going to be the crises that we didn't see coming. You know, when I talk to my students about great power wars in the 19th century, France and Germany, they had no problem going to war against each other because they were closed economies. They didn't rely that much on each other so that it wasn't a mutually assured destruction in the context of the 19th century. You don't have to worry about destroying the French economy because its impact on the German economy is not that big because they didn't live in an interconnected globalized society. So after the end of the Cold War, I remember that very well. We've, I, you know, I came of age in the post-Cold War era I didn't think that the war, like what we're seeing in Ukraine right now, I really didn't think that that was possible. A massive land war in Europe, that's like a thing of the past. We didn't see that. So the, the things that are going to change in the next five or 10 years, it's going to be mostly incremental progress in technology and science with a few game changers where we look at, here's a discovery that we can specifically apply to what's happening right now. And those crises that we never saw coming, because if we never saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine coming and we, we didn't see it until almost it was too late, you know, the intelligence community, they were pretty clear on it. Ukrainians were not. They didn't believe it themselves. You just have to be able to extrapolate. If we were surprised about this, we have to be keep our imaginations uh, uh, open, our, our eyes wide open, because there will always be those political strategic surprises that come yeah you got it. it's it's the comfortability thing we adapt really quickly to certain scenarios which is good for problems if we have a problem we can adapt to that problem pretty quickly but also when we talk about adaptability or comfortability i mean we get so comfortable sometimes we forget some of the basic aspects you know like i'm not saying as an example for a person would be brushing your teeth but as a country it's a little bit bigger than that um 
but David, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, man. Um, we're well, gonna have to come back on and talk about uh, Russia a little bit more. I feel like you got an inner side of you that 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 focuses on that issue a little bit. I mean, look, what are we doing right now? We are giving stingers to the Ukrainian military. Oh, we I don't want to get killed. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> we gave well, listen. We gave stinger missiles to the Mujahideen in in Afghanistan, and that was. That was very important to the collapse of the, the Soviet army in Afghanistan. So history doesn't repeat itself, but in certain cases, man, it really does rhyme. <laughs> it really does. And you got to keep yourself alive to that. It's just, it's, it's a way to understand what's happening right now, for sure. Um, is there a place where people can find you, David, uh, your book links, your Twitter? Yeah, uh, my Twitter is at Zeeler David, Z-I-E-R-L-E-R David. Um, my Twitter is exclusively... I publish uh, right now. I'm publishing one oral history a day for my time at the American Institute of Physics. So um, I, uh, let's see. I think I published my 174th tweet today. So I've done 174 so far, and I have 500 in total. So I'll be at this for quite some time. And then once I'm done tweeting all of those out, uh, I plan to turn to my uh, the work that I'm doing now at Caltech, where I continue to do uh, oral histories of uh, faculty at Caltech, oral histories of alumni at Caltech. Caltech is an incredible institution. There are certain areas where when you look in historical perspective, um, quantum computers, you know, the quantum revolution, so much of it started at Caltech and the, the creation of a scalable quantum computer wherever that happens, if it's gonna be Google, if it's gonna be IBM, if it's going to be China, it's going to be a national lab, wherever that happens, the people who are involved with it there, they will have some connection to Caltech. Um, another one is the 100th anniversary of the Seismolab, the Richter scale, when we talk about a, an earthquake, a 7.2, that was Professor Richter at Caltech. Uh, we look at the, um, the creation of geophysics and seismology as a modern discipline. So I do these oral histories with faculty, with alumni who have this tremendous reach in the field. Um, I, I, I organize these oral histories into reports to demonstrate how the research has informed not just Caltech, but how Caltech research uh, has changed the world. So once I'm done with all my AIP histories, I plan to tweet out my, uh, my Caltech content. I like to use Twitter exclusively for celebrating the work of scientists. It is a, um, it's a toxic free scientific goodness Twitter feed. And that's my little, what I hope is a positive contribution to, uh, to all of the discourse that you can see on Twitter. So that's, that's mostly how you can see uh, uh, what I'm doing in the oral history realm. And then my book, The Invention of Ecocide was put up by University of Georgia Press in 2011. And uh, one of these days when my kids maybe get a little older, I have some more book ideas uh, on the horizon. I hope to get back into the monograph game as well. well I'll link everything in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for listening to this episode. Bye,